I'm Salma Karashi. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Research Podcast. Today is March 25th, 2021, and we're talking with Kay Tai, who is professor mm -hmm. and Wiley Vale Chair at the Salk Institute and investigator in the Kavli Institute for Brain and Mind at UC San Diego. Hello, Kay. Hi. So um, the Thai lab broadly examines uh, the neural circuit mechani mechanisms of motivated behavior, valence, emotional states, and more recently social interaction. Her group has a big ever innovating toolkit that includes cellular resolution recording and imaging, behavioral assays, projection specific, optogenetic manipulations, and computational tracking and analysis tools. And today in the Zoom, we've got um, a couple of our own motivated behavior specialists. We've got Matt Wanett. Hi, Matt. Howdy. And we've got Thai Lab alum, Tony Burgess-Robles. Hello. Hey, Tony. And of course, we've got Charlie Wilson, as always. Hi, Hi Charlie. Kate, your recent work has really boldly taken the circuit mapping framework mastered by your lab in individual brains and pulled the lens out onto brains that are interacting with one another. Um, and you've managed to do this without drifting too far from cellular and biological level, level resolution and questions. So talk to us about treading this intersection between thinking about the brain from a cellular space to an ethological space. Is it really, is it as simple as saying that social interaction is just another dimension of the environment that we're always trying to manipulate as experimentalists, or is it something broader and deeper in terms of the questions um, that you're after? So, so such a great question. And I, as you were asking the question, I, I sort of thought of some, you know, I started to think about the way the field works. And it's like, you've got these different subfields and neuroscience is such a fun um, landscape because, you know, you've got, you've got like reduction in sort of synaptic physiology. Juana and I used to be in a synaptic physiology lab together. It was just like 12 rigs, you know, everyone's doing one thing and then, you know, moving to circuit stuff, moving into systems and like more different, different kinds of frameworks and crossing those boundaries. I mean, I think you can think about like fingers coming out, like where it's like, okay, psychology, right? And then it really diverged from neuroscience. And it's all, it's almost like this, this big wall between them. And then there's all the space in the middle. You know, you could be at the at the forefront in a lot of different ways. And you can be a technological leader, you could be at the bleeding edge of pushing some concept forward, or you can also be like connecting the dots and, and being that connective tissue in between these webs. I guess, um, you know, I've never heard this before, but your question just made me think like, oh yeah, what is like my style? And, um, you know, I never really thought about it before, but I think, I think it's making these types of connections are just something that that's what my brain does. And that's like, oh, like that's how I think about things. And then, you know, that's just kind of what naturally comes out. So um, I don't know if that was the answer that you were looking for. I'm not looking for any, I'm looking for your truth. <laughs> so, so what's interesting is that your work with Jillian Matthews, it seems it's on, on social connectedness and isolation. And I guess now also with um, uh, Lee, uh, sorry, I don't know his first name. Christopher Lee. Christopher mm -hmm. Lee, right. Uh, it seems timed so perfectly right now for our period of global isolation and mm -hmm. concern with, with interactions. And, and um, so that, so it's, it's really interesting to look at the way you take it. So it's essentially a study on dorsal raphae dopamine neurons, mm -hmm. and it poses this nucleus within this, um, 
within this space that creates kind of this homeostatic mechanism for social interaction. So mm -hmm. this framework kind of says atoms have an ind individual defined set point for social interaction and deviation from that set point is detected and triggers an effector the correct course. There's so many cool things that I can ask you just based on that, that part alone, but could you just start by saying something about the dorsal raphe dopamine uh, neurons as the effector. You pose them as the effector mechanism in this. And then I really want to talk about what defines that point in your mind and how you. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's, that's great summary of, of my talk. Um, uh, I think that the dorsal raphe story is just such an interesting twist and turn of how, how we got there. I mean, I never thought I was going to be studying social isolation. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't an idea that I had. It was just following the data. And, um, you know, it, it really came about actually. So Juan it would know. So Juan and I were both in the Banshee lab at the same time. And, you know, the, the big, big superstar paper that had come out, um, Mark Unglis is, I guess, is like our neuroscience brother, Juan, right? Yeah. Like older brother we didn't overlap with. And um, he had this huge paper about cocaine and dopamine neurons where, you know, you give, animals one injection of cocaine and then you get LTP and that was you know this big nature paper and super influential in the field and um, Jillian worked with Mark and did this cocaine experiment in the dorsal raphe nucleus you know a brain region that's mostly known for serotonin neurons but also has some dopamine neurons and at first it was just intended to be like an incremental study of like our dope our DRN dopamine neurons like VTA dopamine neurons or not like that's kind of do they also respond the same way to cocaine and then the sailing group was different. And we realized it was like all these other manipulations that had gone into it. It wasn't, you know, Jillian realized, Jillian realized that, you know, it was the, after you inject the animals with either cocaine or saline, you move them to the cage by themselves so they don't like freak out the other animals. I don't really know. That's just the protocol. We don't, we're just doing it. And then, you know, she had the, I, you know, she had that control instead of naive animals. You know, it was a really well-designed experiment. She trusted it and followed it and found that these dorsal raphe nucleus dopamine neurons undergo plasticity when animals are socially isolated. It's not nothing to do with cocaine. It's nothing to do with novelty. It's the isolation. And they become more responsive to social stimuli when that occurs. And when you activate them, they mimic a loneliness-like state in that uh, animals become more motivated to seek social contact, but it's an unpleasant aversive state they want to escape from. And um, it's something that we see this correlation with social rank. And so that got us to think about social rank. And, you know, we don't know for sure that it's an effector system. It could be, it could be the control center, but it sort of reflects ready the recognition of a deficit. But, you know, when we think about a control center, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to, I don't know if I would expect it to be localized together in one nucleus or distributed across a macro circuit. We don't know yet. So, oh, go ahead. Oh. okay, I was curious um, in Jillian's work and a lot of the work that you were talking about uh, today, um, have you been looking at just males only or male and females? And you probably can see where I'm going on this because Tom Cash had a paper that like mm -hmm. just came out and was talking about some intriguing sex differences that they found um, when they were perturbing uh, both optogenetic and chemogenetic activation, the uh, the dorsal raphe, ventral PAG dopamine neurons. And I was, I was curious, do you think that the same rules of, I mean, more generally sort of big picture, is isolation gonna be affecting males and females in rodents the same way? Do we know that? And 
also sort of social structures when you end up having both males and females together? I know it's big, big question, um, lots of directions to go on that, but I guess, have you started to dabble in, in the sort of sex differences or are there any sex differences? Great question. So we, within our lab, we, we, with Jillian's paper, we did not do sex differences. Um, that, that I don't have a good reason for that. That just was the time of where we were at the point. And then we started thinking more about social rank stuff. And so I think in our hands, I mean, at this point we are able to get ranks in females, but when we were at MIT, we were unable, like it was very unreliable if we would get linear ranks. So for the rank project, we didn't do females because I think female hierarchies are, are fundamentally different. Um, like the behaviors tend to be more, there's a little bit more turn-taking rather than like something more despotic where there's an alpha that really dominate, you know, the dynamics are different and maybe that, you know, there could be a lot of other factors that contribute to that as well. Um, this paper is great. And I love, you know, Tom Cash's work and um, thinking about, about, you know, it is a different subset of uh, DRN dopamine that for, like mediate the social component. We have now identified that is dorsal rapid nucleus to central amygdala. Surprise, I don't know. And um, that, and not not uh, BNST or um, the basal lateral amygdala. We haven't looked at ventral, uh, we haven't looked at, um, um, you know, the, I don't know what specific subsets Tom has, has investigated totally, but um, there is some overlap overall in the non-specific DRN dopamine neurons that, uh, uh, for nociception. So like, you know, physical pain versus social emotional pain, I guess. I mean, the idea that there could be a convergence, is just so cool. Cause I mean, I guess I, I don't know that I would have intuitively assumed that yes, there's a linguistic link, but aside from that, it would, it was not obvious to me. And it was, it was sort of interesting and, you know, that there might be some convergence of those signals, uh, those different strongly. Um, so, you know, if you think about it more as a teaching signal, maybe that makes more sense, but that's, that's neither here nor there. For sex differences within dorsal raphae nucleus, um, there, uh, our collaborators in Korea have found that there are sex differences, but you know that's still unpublished, so I won't I won't get into the details of it. But yes, definitely there is. I, I guess I have a, a follow up questions uh, uh, related to these. Um, you know, like thinking about Matt's um, question on individual differences basically right so you know at least you know in the case of humans you know we undergo many stress situations across our lives right different individuals um get you know some detrimental effects of those um stress experiences but many other individuals develop coping mechanisms right that makes them more resilient over and over as they keep experiencing even more stress i'm just wondering you know like you know also in light of the, of the pandemic in which basically all of us were forced to socially isolate, right? Mm -hmm. where, um, where do you think, you know, like we can start studying these kind of um, differences, you know, like resilient individuals versus non-resilient? And what do you think about that? Yeah, um, so there's so many different things. There's so many different things in this question. Um, Sorry about that. No, no, no. I mean, I think, I think, Okay, so so in some ways, the pandemic, I think in many ways for this line of research, the pandemic was great because it made it a priority. Nobody wanted to publish social isolation paper, papers at first. Like it was it was like so difficult that, you know, Jillian's, Jillian's PhD paper got rolled into her postdoc with me because it was just, <laughs> we couldn't publish it and, and no one cared. And then all of a sudden everybody really cares. So that's great. I'm glad that people care. <laughs> 
because it's important. Um, but I think that the, um, first of all, the type of isolation that is experienced is very different. Like there's, there's this concept of social distancing, which is in itself, um, you know, a, a different type of experience. And so I think we've got to like different, we have to categorize them. And I think one important division is isolation that you choose versus isolation that you feel is you're excluded from. So that's something that's sort of been known for a while, but what about when there's like a third, then it's not like, you're not, you're not left out of this party. You know what I mean? It's not like there just are no parties. So, you know, there's a feeling if you weren't invited to a party, that feels bad. If you were invited to a party, but you chose not to go, it doesn't feel as bad. And then like, if there just was no party, what is that? So it's kind of a completely different situation. And this, they've been, there've been a lot of cognitive, you know, human imaging studies of, of different types of exclusion and what that means, you know, like, like, oh, you, there's a ball game and you don't, they don't have this particular subject. And then how do you experience that exclusion? And, um, you know, I, I think, I think this is going to lead to a lot of different variations of, of, you know, levels of social distancing or social isolation or, or de deprivation of social contact. Um, the other factor is that, um, you know, in terms of, the timelines that we have previously thought were ethical or non-ethical, um, you know, because I mean, after the Harry Harlow experiments, um, you know, with the social isolation of young young monkeys, um, and it was after that, you know, there was just that was like this beginning of PETA and like you know all of this ethical welfare of animals and. Um, that you know that just has the stigma of being so like it. it confinement is torture, et cetera, et cetera. And I think having an experience like this might um, make us rethink the relative importance versus the, the stigma of, of something being harmful. So, you know, I, I think before there wasn't as much of a reason, what would be the benefit of studying this? Nobody understood the benefit. And so it just, you know, nobody could do social isolation experiments, certainly not in primates, you know, certainly not in humans, of course. Um, totally. but now it changes it. Yeah, totally. Myself, you know, like as we spoke this morning, you know, like we began a project on the effects of social isolation and even how learning processes and detecting threats and detecting safety options in the yeah. environment are changed just due to some social isolation exposure, right? So I guess also my question, and, and I think, you know, like within your answer, you mentioned something about, you know, like it, there's different kinds of social isolation, you know, either we choose or not. Um, I was also thinking about when I formulated my question about, um, you know, like patients, you know, for example, that um, got COVID infections, right? You know, like- those, They are actually isolated. Yeah. yeah, they are actually isolated. And it's so, so important that we understand, you know, like the nodal basis or, or how, you know, just this isolation experience affects very dramatically our brain function, you know, in general. I was actually curious, um, have you guys played, I mean, Kay, when you were sort of describing the sort of different gradations of isolation, um, I mean, it's likely what we have, or in the laboratory setting, uh, you've got the, there's a party going on and you're not involved. Like, have you ever sort of taken the isolated animals and made sure they're in their own segregated room with only other isolated animals? Or are they sort of in the, like the housing oh. situation where they can do that? Because it, it, it really just- And hear all the parties that are happening without them. 
Yeah, I mean, actually, I mean, oh, that's it, such an interesting idea. I love that idea. Anyway, it's just something. Uh, like, man, oh, how did he do this? Like, get another room. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's <laughs> not going to be cheap. Cubicle. I mean, basically, yeah. no, that's a really important. I mean, because you're absolutely right. Like, those ultrasonic vocalizations, those social calls, absolutely all the other animals can hear it. You know what I mean? I'm sure that they can. You definitely can hear everybody else having their conversations while you're in your cell by yourself. It's like, yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, the proposed experience that we were thinking about in marmosets would, because you can't isolate marmosets, like there's no way that that will be allowable, um, but you could distance them. So they're still like visually and aud like auditorily in contact, but at a distance, you know, I think that type of just like remove the physical talk component and then keep everything else is maybe something useful. It's not quite like Zoom, but I mean, Zoom is pretty good audio visual. It's not perfect. It's not the same as being, you know, separated, but it might be more analogous. I don't know. I think moving one modality at a time might be useful in terms of understanding what's going on. Can we talk about rank a bit? Because embedded sure. in all of that, you mentioned rank and rank is what determines whether the valence of isolation is going to be positive or negative. So if you're a low on the hierarchy, or this is like an, an intuition that you have to think about whether the valence is going to be positive or negative, right? So, so for actually for the positive or negative, we've been only thinking about in terms of acute or chronic isolation, but um, you're right that, that, you know, like rank and isolation, it's interesting to think about the interaction. So what, but one of the, so, so talk about where rank sort of comes into the dorsal raphe studies, because that's some work that you've done. And then I also, there's a lot of work on medial prefrontal cortex encoding uh, brain mm -hmm. states that are associated with, with rank. Um, and I, I really hope that you guys could talk a little bit about that because that's work that is so interesting and I don't know anything about it. And, you know, because rank itself is so context specific, right? In my house, I'm the king. Here, I'm, you know, I'm not. So are these global, like how do we imagine that these are sort of globally entrenched things and how sort of flexible are they? you know, you can change rank within a, a social context. Mm -hmm. uh, and what does that mean? You know, like, the, so, so yeah, the humans change ranks many times throughout the day, you know, yeah. meeting to meeting, lab meeting to like faculty meeting, it's like, boom, 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 you know, constantly changing. But um, great question. So, so it's, I guess, okay, the, the wild speculation thing that I had was that, you know, we we're trying to think about DRN dopamine neurons representing a loneliness like state, but loneliness is subjective. So like, how could we even get at this? So we just started trying to look at social rank because it was a way to access subjectivity. And we did see this super strong correlation between the optogenetics all, you know, all the we did, and basically all the effects are being driven by the dominance. They're all strongly correlated with social ranks. Subordinates stimulating these neurons doesn't really do anything. And the subordinate neurons, you know, maybe had a little bit, you know, this is evidence is kind of shaky. Some one rep, one, one look at this, we found a correlation and another look wasn't replicated. So we'll see. But initially we saw maybe that there's more, more TH in dominant animals than subordinates. And so like, okay, maybe they're not having it. Like, why would near the same neurons in one population of animals be, you know, why would that be different 
like why would it why would it only affect sub- dominance and not subordinates you know and um, like social context tasks and even place avoidance tasks it's like that is nothing is social necessarily so we try to think about what could be going on there so then we started to think about social rank and how you know you can't really think about the homeostat without understanding how social information is detected. And we can't think about how social information is detected if we don't know the source, because the source of the social information um, really matters in how you would interpret it. So understanding rank became like, oh, we really need to do this first. So just a technical question, in those experiments, was dominance and subordinate status worked out within that context, in that experiment, like whoever won the battle or like, are these sort of larger structures that you're, you're, you're categorizing? Um, uh, no, we, yeah, we, we ranked them. We did two ranks and um, the, everybody had a rank in their cage. And then we, you know, just correlated like, the degree, the delta of change with light on versus light off, like how much light changed behavior and social rank. And it was very strongly correlated for every task, like place avoidance, um, channel option, gain of function, social and muscle function. So that was like, huh, rank is doing something. And rank seems like, you know, it matters because if you have a social need state with that female or whatever, I know that I'm not like, I'm going to get beat up by this alpha. If I try to mate with this female, then maybe I would suppress that. Maybe I don't want that drive to be so strong. So I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about how you've sort of been moving into the new direction of being able to sort of record activity from multiple animals at the same time, which I think is a really sort of exciting way where, you know, a lot of times, you know, we're focused on one animal in a contrived, you know, circumstance, mm-hmm. but um, it really is moving the field forward, you know, by leaps and bounds by, you know, having multiple animals being able to interact or at least two. And, you know, what you've been doing and what you've been finding, I guess, with that and sort of devising those experiments, which are, you know, quite elegant as far as being able to look at the interaction between one that, you know, might be more dominant versus another one that's subordinate. Yeah, no, those, those, um, we tried a bunch of different things. I mean, for honestly, it was like, I was kind of thinking maybe imaging would be ready first, like wireless imaging would be ready first. But then um, hang, talking to Matthias Carlson, who Juan and I used to go climbing with back in like grad school 20 years ago, or I don't know how long, ago, but long time ago. And he, his company makes these wireless, uh, you know, head stages for in vivo e-fizz and there's just a little battery. So that's what we've been using and it works great. And you know, it allowed us, we can do many more animals. I think it was all just about like, now that the computer vision tool finally works, I would be comfortable using a task with more animals. But at the time, you know, we weren't, everything was kind of being developed in parallel. It was like the hardware, the software, the task is like all just, you know, hope all these things work out because the project won't be possible (laughs) otherwise. So that's kind of um, how we got to, it is absolutely we should be doing it with women yeah that, oops sorry yeah that, that's totally yeah that, i was hoping you would get to thank you on it because this idea of just of social interaction being this environmental thing that we're manipulating is is really not right question right it's looking at brains interacting and, and with one another and seeing the changes relative yeah change. no so towards your um previous question salma uh thinking about about you know, how your rank changes rapidly. So we've been doing, this is like a sort of a follow-up to this project where we record the animal with one, you know, with one, let's say we take an intermediate, we pair them with a dominant first, 
then they're by themselves a little bit, then they do another session with a subordinate. And then the next day we do like, you know, control for order. Um, what we can see is that, you know, how does the representation shift from like, you know, just minutes to minutes um, of what's going on there. We've also been looking at absolute rank in the cage and whether it's all relative rank that really matters or is it absolute rank that matters to be PSCs representing relative rank, which makes sense. Like, you know, it, it's not even clear that we necessarily have an absolute rank, if that makes any sense. You know, it's like, what is my rank? It doesn't mean anything without the context of a social environment. At, you know, at home, I'm a, I'm an adult, I'm a, I'm a parent, so I'm a boss. You know, at, at, in my lab meeting, maybe I'm the alpha, but at like other faculty meetings or different conferences, like maybe I'm just, you know, whatever. You just kind of have to snap between these different situations so rapidly. And um, I think it's possible that we don't, I mean, we, it doesn't seem like we store absolute rank in the prefrontal cortex. Maybe we store it somewhere else. I don't know, it's very preliminary. So we'll see. Can you imagine in, in the context of the tube test and where you have, or, or in the, you know, the arena where the two animals are going at it and you have sort of multiple losses piling up. I don't know if this ever mm -hmm. happens with a dominant mm -hmm. and a subordinate. Totally. Could you see the context shifting, like the dominance shifting within, I mean, presume, I mean, I don't think you've done this experiment, obviously, because I don't know if you have the prefrontal recordings of multiple losses in a row. Like, do you see? We, we do. We do. Um, we, we see, there's a lot of interesting patterns. Um, there's often something where um, the dominant, it's kind of like, it, so if you look at the if you break that decoding accuracy up into subordinates and dominance, I usually people ask a question, so I, I just kind of save it for questions, but um, the dominant accuracy just like stays high the whole time. The subordinate accuracy, it's still like above chance, but it starts out kind of low and then, and then like catches up to the dominant later. So my speculation is, and like also watching the videos, you can see that there's active wins where they're like both, both like pushing at the fort and there's passive wins where one animal is just like in the corner grooming and it's like the other guy's turn. Um, and so this is really interesting, but I think what happens is is looking at the dominant basically to see the level of engagement. And then based on the level of engagement of the dominant, which is just like, I'm either trying to get this reward or I'm not. And then if I try to get it, I'll probably get it. And if I don't try to get it, I obviously won't get it. And that's what, that's like what the decoding accuracy comes from in the dominance. The subordinates, it's like, there's a little bit of that. There's, you know, they could be just unattentive, inattentive, but um, if they see the dominant not engaging, then they're like, ooh, this is my chance. And so you can see the decoding accuracy like really shoot up after the cue. Like if the cue goes on and the dominant's not going for it, they're like, ooh, here's my chance. And then you can see them go. So it's interesting. I definitely think there is this asymmetry in the dynamic between the sport and the dominant. I guess my, I guess my next question is related to this because I'm, I, I was fascinated to see all this new analysis, computational analysis so to decode the activity of the media prefrontal cortex to determine how the animals are performing during this reward competition task, right? And you mentioned, you know, that you could go farther like 30 seconds before and the decoding accuracy is still as good as, you know, like immediately prior to winning, right? So I'm wondering if, you know, that's just a, a result of, you know, the actual winning or, you know, like the media history of what just happened in previous trials. And I think it nails to, um, goes back to Salma's question, or is it related to the overall activity in those dominant animals 
forever, you know, like I'm thinking if you mm. have done any recordings even prior to training the animals during this competition task mm. to see if, you know, like the PFC activity can already predict, you know, how are these animals oh. going to perform, you know, like later during the competition task, right? Mm. Um, this is an interesting idea. I mean, the way that we do the analysis, that wouldn't be possible because you would need training data from before. Right. Or maybe not, maybe you could test it on, you know, use current training data and then test it on old data. But then there's no outcomes. I think you need the behavioral outcomes to be able to test it. The way that we're doing it is we're decoding, you know, we're like like predicting trial by trial. So like um, maybe for rank, I don't know. We've, we were also doing this rehousing experiment because, you know, I, I alluded to this, this the issue, which is a problem in the field that I'm guilty of this too at this point, um, where if we have neurons that respond to the president of the United States, for example, is that a rank neuron or is that an identity neuron? We don't know until you show me another president. You know what I mean? Like until someone, until that person isn't president anymore or you show me like lots of presidents or something. We have to dissociate the rank from the, the identity. If neurons in my brain fired to Barack Obama when I met him, when he was president, and then like a bunch of the neurons didn't respond after he, after Trump was president or, or Biden's president, then like, you know, that would be a rank neuron. But that experience is non-trivial to do. So that's what we're doing right now. And the way that we're going about it is, is rehousing animals so that they will have different ranks and changing their ranks, essentially. Right. Finding ways to separate rank and identity. But so can you, oh, go ahead. Well, I, I think following up a little bit on what, you know, Tony was saying there, like one of the most fascinating things is, you know, 30 seconds before the trial begins, you can look at the activity of what's happening in the prefrontal cortex and you have great accuracy of predicting what the outcome is gonna be. And, I, and you mentioned you couldn't go back any further. And I was curious because it was the preceding trial. And in some ways I wonder, is it perhaps the subjective experience of what happened on the previous trial that's sort of mm. driving you know, how, you know, how good was that reward? Now, did I really like it? You know what, I'm gonna fight for it now. And I, and I guess I, it's sort of difficult questions, but I guess, can you even go back further and look at sort of, is the reward, you know, the activity to the actual, you know, preceding reward, is that then serving as the, not to say the gate, or at least it's the setting, you know, it determines, you know, where you're going to be. Are you likely going to fight for it? Yeah. Or are you going to be chill out? And I guess that also potentially could pull out looking at trial by trials throughout the, because I would imagine, and I don't know without this, but like early on in a session, maybe more dominant, maybe more aggressive. And then after maybe they get their fill, they'll be like, chill out. And there might be more subordinate wins later on. And I, I guess, does that bear out? And sorry, that was a yeah. many layered question there. No, I, I think, um, so for our experiments, we looked at that, but we didn't see anything really, really robust in terms of streaks of, of wins and losses. It, the, the, the way the task is, it, it ends up not, not really being significant. Um, but the work from Hailan Hu really convincingly, I think, shows that there's a winner effect or, or you know, maybe it's more accurate to say a loser effect that um, winning doesn't necessarily make you win more, but the losing the losing does make you lose, more, like make you like um, give up more easily. So I think that's interesting uh, to think about. And, and, you know, maybe 
maybe a winning mindset is more fragile than a losing mindset. I don't know how you want to think about it. Like from a computational perspective, I think about it in terms of like attractor states. Like, is this attractor state going to kind of like be, you know, be something that like holds more stably than, than, you know, a winning more fragile sort of mindset or, or representation. Although you would expect that an, that an unexpected loss for, for someone who's on a winning mm-hmm. streak would be especially disruptive, right. just intuitively, yes. right? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I think it's it's not unrelated to like classical learning theory from what you would expect. Um, but but so yeah, I think that is something that occurs. I don't I don't know. I mean, our our this particular task was, you know, I think with um the the tube test, the winning is like maybe more um, salient. Uh, I was going to say humiliating. And I was like, that is not very scientific, but um, you know, it's like you, you have to walk backwards for a long time. Like you're losing for a long time. Whereas like, if it's the reward competition task, it's just like, okay, you didn't get this one, but there'll be more. There's like so many more trials. Whereas t- two tests, there's fewer trials. You know, it's just a longer task. So I don't know. It's interesting to think about, but yeah. I wanted to get, uh, I'm so glad you have a lot of energy because this is going to be a long one. Um, but I wanted to get to the difference. It seems like I don't know the literature, so maybe you can explain to us the difference between acute and chronic isolation mm-hmm. in, the, in the few things that I read seemed almost arbitrary, the way it's, yeah. it's chalked out for rodents. But yet the outcomes when reintroduced into a social setting are so different that I guess it's a week versus more than a week is, is, is chronic mm-hmm. versus acute. Maybe you could explain that. Um, talk about the, like at a, a cellular synaptic level, the adaptations that you imagine could be responsible for this kind of thing or how you're thinking about this adaptation because you've called it an adaptation. And I don't know if you mean that in a literal synaptic sense of adaptation or whether mm-hmm. it's a sort of a behavioral. I definitely think there is some sort of synaptic adaptation. Um, we don't know what it is yet, but I mean, it's likely there's an acute synaptic, synaptic adaptation and then sort of uh, something that looks like a very homeostatic kind of time scale of um, maybe a little bit slow for homeostatic, but, but I think I imagine that that is likely true. So we certainly have plasticity adaptations um, with on the scale of acute stuff and acute and chronic, it is, it's totally arbitrary in the field. And also, I mean, who, is it even time per se, or is it correction effort? And so, you know, I think all these things depend and, you know, given that different animals have different lifespans, you know, chronic for a fly is not going to be the same as chronic for a human and even a human mouse, like, you know, human lives, 80 years and a mouse lives two years. It's like really not, I don't know how to compare these timescales across different species of animals with such vast different reproductive and lifespans. Um, so I think maybe though within a species, there is a time constant, you know, you have a circadian rhythm. Maybe that is like how the allostatic load builds up, builds up, right? Where there's some amount of, um, in, you know, evolved, evolved set point for, for, for keeping track of time, I suppose that's possible. It seems kind of more likely to me that it's correction effort though. Like you're making calls or you're venturing out of your burrow. You're trying to, you know, meet mates. It's, it takes effort. And, you know, if you have a lot of failures, you might decide that the cost benefit ratio just isn't worth it. 
and you know, with some updating, you just, it isn't, it isn't worth it anymore. And that's the possibility. I think in terms of the homeostatic set point adaptation, it's where would this form, what would trigger the adaptation? Would it be gradual? I mean, the behavioral change seems sort of step function like, you know, you try, you try every day until you just stop, right? Or whatever. Maybe not. It, it doesn't seem like linear. Um, whereas as if it's an allostatic load kind of model where it's drip, drip, drip into a bucket until finally, you know, you snap or whatever that means or make your adaptation. Um, I think that is also possible. We just haven't systematically worked this out. You know, people have used isolation not to necessarily explore the time course, but um, for chronic isolation as, as a model for schizophrenia, as, you know, early life stress model, you know, just as, as something that is sort of a, a sledgehammer, so to speak. And we haven't gone through to study the time scales and what is exactly changing at roughly a week. You know, a lot of things do seem to change in our hands anecdotally. There is something around, you know, the week-ish to two-week mark that that seems different, but, you know, there's genetic adaptations. David Anderson, Moriel Zilkowski from David Anderson's lab has shown that, you know, TAC2 may have a role. So there could be some genetic changes that occur, some epigenetic changes on, you know, lots of possibilities. And, and it's probably all of these answers are contributing, you know, most likely. So there's obviously only a fixed number of, uh, you know, hours in a day, but there's so many sort of variations on this, you know, a theme of implementing sort of isolation that one can test. But I guess a couple that sort of popped out to my mind was, have you looked at sort of intermittent exposure of isolation, then back, isolation back, and I guess sort of influence from the, the drug addiction literature of mm -hmm. how intermittent access itself can like, you know, end up having a more robust sort of phenotype and a lot of models of drug addiction in some ways that could be sort of traumatic. And I guess the, the other thing, I'm, you know, I'm sort of thinking COVID, uh, lockdown, oh, you can go out a bit, lockdown, you know, sort of the, mm -hmm. those mm -hmm. cycles. And I guess the other thing is juveniles as well, um, where, you know, isolation, particularly, I mean, from a translational perspective, you know, isolation during adolescence can be, you know, very traumatic. Um, and, you know, have you looked in, or anybody else for that matter, looked in um, how isolation is uh, influencing behavior from sort of a developmental standpoint? Mm -hmm. Great question. Um, Byung Kuk Lim, my colleague at UCSD, um, has been looking at this and um, has looked at at social isolation when it's predictable, um, I believe like, you know, versus when it's not. So I, I, the analogy he uses is like, it's, well, if it's, you're dropping your child off at daycare, it's like a very reliable time. There's gonna be, you know, it's like very predictable. And if it's, if it's reliable every time, it's not a big deal. It's like, if mommy's late, then there's like a huge stressor. Or if, if you don't know when you're going to, you know, with COVID, it was very different. It was very unpredictable. Everyone's like, when, what's going to happen? When can we go back to work? Is it, what is, what, what, what's happening? And then it was like different, you know, all over the place. So, so that was the uncertainty, I think, was very difficult to deal with in contrast to something where like, here's the schedule, here's the plan, be, adjust. Whereas, you know, you don't know if you should be adjusting. Should I be, what should I be adapting to right now? Because it's sort of changing a lot. I think that makes it actually more difficult you know, for your brain to adapt because it's not clear what strategy should be used. So I think that, I think uh, anything predictable would be a better way to, to reduce the stress. That's very similar to, to drug addiction, right? Like it's the unpredictable intermittent access. If it was reliable, 
then it's okay. You have to have some days where there's lots more and some days there's none. That's what makes it work. It has to be that, that variability um, that makes you have this like hoarding instinct, so to speak. I don't know what the right word is, but. Um, so, so how do you model that in this homeostasis uh, flow? I mean, is that just an, is that another node in that or does, how does that? Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. So um, we, we have not looked at that. We've not, we're not working in juveniles right now. We're mostly focusing on adults. Um, I think the, so I don't know, you know, the other answers to Juana's question, but um, in terms of, of the interaction with many other components, um, one, one thing we are looking at relevant to what you were just bringing up is, is actually alcohol drinking. Um, how does, you know, alcohol sales were like through the roof during the pandemic. It was like, it was like hate crimes, uh, screen usage, alcohol usage is like all like through the roof. Um, and social isolation, first of all, there is a correlation between drinking and social rank. Um, but across the board, all ranks of animals drink more when they're isolated. And so we're just kind of looking at that and looking at how prefrontal cortical neurons might change uh, longitudinally uh, across different phases of isolation that could predict their development of compulsive alcohol drinking behavior. I, I guess I have a question about, you know, like possible future directions and to understand better all these factors contributing because you mentioned the predictability of the stressor, right? Uh, but also a huge factor that, you know, has been investigated with other forms of stress is the controllability over the stressor, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which, you know, just thinking about all this work from Steve Mayer in, in Boulder, right? Yes. Um, that, you know, even um, there are different subregions of the middle prefrontal cortex uh, playing in very important roles in encoding this controllability over the stressor, right? Yes. So just wondering how, if any ideas come to mind about uh, an experimental design in which um, animals are able to control a social isolation stressor, maybe, oh, maybe yeah. difficult, right? Maybe difficult to achieve, but... Um, yeah, that's guess, interesting. Yeah, I guess, I guess it relates to the question you, uh, um, we were talking about earlier about, you know, different types of social isolation, right? Mm -hmm. Is it forced? Um, are people, you know, especially if they are sick, you know, like there's no way they can, you know, exit the room or the ICU, yeah. you know what I mean? So <laughs> I think that one's so bad too, because, you know, one of the, one of the things that correlates with perceived loneliness or social isolation is increased severity in response to a viral immune challenge. So like, uh, I mean, it's probably the worst thing that you could do for someone with COVID is to socially isolate them. I mean, I understand the reason of why people do that, but, oh, that's rough, so. Yeah. <laughs> random question. Uh, um, I was gonna bring up needed. autism, but I'm not gonna do that because that's just, that would be mean. Um, but, uh, you, so you have done, have you done some work in, in prairie voles? I saw some stuff cited no. in the, in the review, but I guess that was, that was. No, no, that's, general. that's work from other people's labs. I mean, beautiful yeah. work has been done in prairie voles and, and, you know, talking to Zoe Donaldson about the difference between, you know, social isolation and loss, like of a pair bonded partner, for example, you know, it's, it's, it's very different. And, 
thinking about that. So that's super interesting field. Um, beautiful work's been done by so many. Um, so on the, in, on the scheme of like where, how we imagine rodents in their social structures, there are, are mice and, and rats sort of comparable. I mean, I know they're, it's, it's much less of a- I don't know that much about rats, but um, for, I mean, I think, I don't, I think it's similar, but I actually don't know. Um, I know for mice that they're similar people in a lot of ways um, in that they're like kind of default group size 20 to 30, you know, sort of like a default mouse colony in the wild. Um, so not that different from like, you know, classroom sports teams, departments kind of thing. And your your rank is flexible, but pretty stable. Like once the rank and hierarchies form, it's like pretty stable. You there's there's like different hierarchies that can be formed with different strains of mice and under different conditions that are ranging ranging from like linear to more egalitarian or sometimes more despotic. I think, you know, people also can like form different, like a variety of different structures. It's not always linear, you know, it's not always one thing. Um, it depends on the conditions that, and, um, you know, sort of the way that ranks are enforced um, and expressed, it's not dissimilar. So there's a lot of commonalities between people and mice. I think it's, um, I think it's sort of interesting to compare to marmosets where they really like kind of spend more time in the family unit, which is, you know, another really, like humans are so versatile and across different phases of our of civilization, we've had more, more communal versus more family, nuclear family structured social groups. So I think studying these things across species is really important to do. Yeah, no, that's, that's what I was hoping you, that's what I was trying to get at there. But, um, well, I think, should we call it guys? <laughs> this has been a lot of fun and I could tell people are sort of sitting on their hands trying not to ask more questions. Um, but we, we hope to hear more about this stuff. This is fantastic. It's been really timely. Um, really enjoyed getting up to speed on a topic I hadn't really read about uh, at all until your work. Um, and thank you for joining us, Kei Tai. Uh, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Mm -hmm.